lunch with Parkinson's in April and at the time planned to keep working in Congress. Wexton is a Democrat and she flipped Virginia's 10th district back in 2018. The district in northern Virginia, west of Washington, D.C., had been held by the GOP for decades. Wexton plans to serve out her current term, which runs through next year. Right now, it's time for On Balance with Leland Vitter. Leland will speak to an expelled Yale student who was acquitted of rape and suing his accuser. I'm Elizabeth Vargas. We'll see you right back here tomorrow night. On the program tonight, $6 billion for five Americans. The Iran prisoner swap shows a president negotiating from weakness, not strength, again. Bill O'Reilly on America's retreat from exceptionalism. Kangaroo Court. Yale kicked out a student despite a not guilty verdict in his rape case. Is there hope for a fundamentally flawed college justice system? Hit and run. The heinous hate crime ignored by the liberal television networks. What a senseless killing says about the value of human life in America these days. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, something that is undeniably true, not only about human nature, but about the animal kingdom as a whole goes back since time began. Weakness is provocative. And President Biden addresses the United Nations tomorrow morning, leading a country as weak as we have been since the 1970s, maybe the weakest we've been since the 1930s. It does not matter if you are a Republican, a Democrat, or a unicorn enthusiast. We as Americans are safest. The world is safest. When America is feared, and respected. That is undeniably true. And America right now is neither feared nor respected. In the latest example, we just gave Iran $6 billion for five American hostages. Even Jimmy Carter didn't do that. This is video of the Americans getting off a plane in Qatar en route to the United States. And bringing Americans home is unquestionably good and a noble endeavor. I've been on the tarmac at Andrews when American hostages came home. It was a profoundly amazing and moving experience. But the rest of the world now knows the price tag on every American's head. President Trump wrote on True Social today, I brought 58 hostages home from many different countries, including North Korea, and I never paid anything. They all understood they must let these people come home. Toward the end, it got so the countries didn't even start the conversation asking for money because they knew they wouldn't get it. Reasonable people can disagree about Trump's foreign policy, but he did have that right. The world feared him. He ordered the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani ran Iran's terror networks around the world and was responsible for the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans. Today, just a few years after that, we gave the Iranians $6 billion. Here is the Secretary of State. We're very confident that the, uh, the funds, the Iranian funds, that have been uh, made more easily available to Iran as a result uh, of uh, the actions that we've taken uh, will be used exclusively for humanitarian purposes, and we have the means and mechanisms to make sure that that happens. Antony Blinken must think Americans have an awfully short memory. 
The Obama administration made similar promises when they traded five Taliban bigwigs for Bo Bergdahl. The Taliban guys would never, never go back to the battlefield, blah, blah, blah. The Obama administration, which Blinken served in, had all sorts of assurances and checks and balances and mechanisms to make sure that happened. And you know what happened. The Taliban bigwigs went back to the battlefield. But let's be fair and give the administration its its due, its best talking point, that the $6 billion can only be used for humanitarian purposes, even if you believe that. That frees up $6 billion of illicit Iranian money for buying more nuclear technology, for testing ballistic missiles, for continuing funding terrorists around the world, and committing atrocities at home. This is the one-year anniversary of the Iran protests. We covered it extensively here on the program. You might remember the video of brave Iranians taking to the streets, demanding freedom, demanding religious freedom, demanding an end to the crackdowns from the religious police in Iran. The regime there mowed them down with machine guns. Antony Blinken at the time stood aside and issued stern warnings. The Ayatollah basically laughed in his face. The story of Masha Amini largely disappeared from the media. Her killing is what began all of the protests. Today, that same media cheer-led a deal with the regime that killed her and hundreds more. So, so much for women's rights. Or for the memory of 603 Americans' troops, the Pentagon says, were killed by Iranian-backed militias during the war in Iraq. So think about their families right now. The regime that killed their kids just got $6 billion. And all of that's emotional. It makes you angry. It should make you angry. It should make any American angry. But the real danger is the message it sends going forward. Let's just do a quick tour of the world since Mr. Biden took office. North Korea started ballistic missile tests again. They will likely defy America and send ammunition to Russia. They will get nuclear technology in exchange. Now we move over to Russia. It's a long list for them. They, of course, invaded Ukraine, committed war crimes. The Russians also continue to take Americans hostage and threaten U.S. military planes. China, it's even a longer list. Threaten the invasion of Taiwan, aggressively targeting America with spies and, of course, spy balloons. The COVID cover-up continues, and they continue a massive military buildup. Speaking of military buildup, Wall Street Journal just reported hypersonic missiles are game changers and America doesn't have them. The U.S. has invested billions of dollars in dozens of programs to develop its own version of the technology. Those efforts have either been ended in failure or been canceled before having a chance to succeed. China and Russia have hypersonic missiles. We've gotten fat and happy, indulging ourselves by teaching Air Force pilots about pronouns and spending a trillion dollars to lower our carbon footprint. Americans know it. They can feel the results. 47% of Americans say our influence around the world is getting weaker. 19%, only 19% say it's getting stronger. 32% say our influence has stayed about the same. It doesn't matter what party you're in. When the American president speaks before the United Nations, it matters. The world is watching, and America will be speaking from a position of grave weakness. That should scare us all, Republican, Democrat, or even unicorn enthusiasts. Bill O'Reilly is here, host of the No Spin News. Bill, good to see you. Have I painted too bleak a picture? A little bit. Um, You got to go and look at this from a historical point of view. Uh, The Iranians... Uh, led to the demise of President Jimmy Carter. Uh, That was the embassy hostages at Walter Cronkite, um, famously put up on the screen every night. This many days they've been held. 
Carter couldn't get him out. That was the uh, entry to Ronald Reagan. But in 1985, Reagan made the Iran-Contra deal, the secret deal that uh, sold arms to the Iranians and used the money to fund the Contras. Huge mistake. Uh, talk about people not doing what they were supposed to do. Anyway, uh, on this one, it's not as clear cut as many pundits would have you believe. The money that goes to Iran was frozen in South Korea as part of the uh, worldwide sanctions against the Iranian nuke situation. Yes, they're going to get six billion dollars. Blinken embarrasses himself when he says, oh, we're assured they're going to use it for humanitarian purposes. Nobody believes that. Maybe Blinken believes it. I don't know if he's that dumb. I don't know the man. But the mullahs will use the money for whatever they want. And what they want is to create turmoil in the world. Now, let's get to uh, President Biden. He's going to speak tomorrow at the U.N. We uh, are informed that much of the speech is going to be on climate change. All right. So Biden sees himself as uh, mitigating the most dangerous thing to the planet, global warming. Not Iran, not China, not Russia, global warming. That's the big enemy in Biden's mind. Americans voted for Joe Biden to the tune of 80 million ballots. And you didn't know that? You didn't know that he didn't have the stomach for a confrontation with our enemies? You voted for him anyway. Let's bring in Trump. Now, as you know, Leland, I know Trump as well as anybody on the planet. The reason that he handled the Iranians was because he said to the mullahs, uh, basically through Secretary of State Pompeo, that if you do anything, we're going to blow the hell out of all your ports in the Persian Gulf, and you're not going to get any shipping in and out of there. We'll starve you to death. And the United States could do that in 48 hours, maybe 24. If you look at the map, the Iranian ports are very vulnerable to our bases in Kuwait, to our shipping in the Persian Gulf. And Trump laid it out pretty clearly. This is what's going to happen to you. Okay, so they didn't do it. Iranians, as you said, were frightened. They are not frightened of Joe Biden. The thing that disturbed me about Trump, and this is a little bit off topic, but you can bring it back about America's power and how you have to use it for good, is that Trump had the opportunity to take out the Mexican drug cartels um, by declaring them terrorists, terrorist groups. And therefore, we could have drawn them and used special forces to go in and kill them all, which he should have done because you can know the problems of Mexican drug cartels are causing the American public right now because Biden, again, is too weak to confront them or even Bill, police the Bill, border. Bill, at the, the beginning be of this, at the beginning of this, you said that I was being too tough and then and painting too bleak a picture, but you're now going around the world pointing out all the places that America is weaker. I'm wondering how you thought I was being too tough. Okay, because we don't know the circumstances involved in the release of the hostages as far as their human value is concerned. So if I'm the president, if you're the president, Leland, you're a decent guy. You got to look at and see and weigh, all right, what is more important, saving the lives of six American citizens, all of Iranian descent, 
um, or being tough guys and say we're not going to give you anything. Um, Trump would have done it the other way, as he pointed out on True Social. He said, look, release these guys or we're going to we're going to really hurt your heart. But for me, I don't know if I would have escalated it that far. So the six billion, not that important in the long scheme of things. The six lives are important. That's where I but I could be wrong about that because I don't have the data in front of me. I'll, I'll give you the last 30 seconds. The, the flip side would be, I agree with you about the, six, about the five lives and the, the guys who have come home. The flip side would be is that if you lay down a law that America doesn't negotiate and you're going to pay a price for taking hostages, um, then it's actually about more lives in the future. It's about Paul Whelan. Yeah, it's but you're never going to get, you'll never get the Wall Street... If you do that, you'll never get the Wall Street Journal guy out of Russia. Sometimes you have to make deals. But I'll tell you what, um, you got to back the deals up with ferocity. And Biden is incapable of doing that. Yeah. You, you, you made the point. Tomorrow, tomorrow is going to be about climate, which is actually where we're headed um, right now. Bill, it's good to see you as yeah. always. Thank you. All right. Uh, gas, speaking of climate, will soon hit six bucks a gallon in Los Angeles. By all appearances, President Biden, in some ways, kind of views that as a success. Bill alluded to this. Because President Biden shows no sign of stopping his action show climate agenda above all, which is what the speech tomorrow is going to be about. From the New York Times today, if the president wins re-election, his climate team is likely to try and cut greenhouse gases from steel, cement, and other hard-to-clean-up manufacturing. Those regulations will do to the cement and steel industries the same things regulations on domestic energy does to gas prices. It will rise prices for all of us, a.k.a. inflation. As we have said, and as the president will talk about tomorrow, climate orthodoxy above all else. We see that play out on the United Auto Workers picket lines right now. The United Auto Workers are on strike in large part because of subsidies for electric vehicles. And Union Joe has abandoned the union to keep the climate orthodoxy. From the New York Times piece today, the prospects of new mandates from Washington regarding steel and cement, the bedrock of materials for American construction, could sour the swing state union workers courted by Mr. Biden. Here with us now, Axios business reporter Nathan Bami. Nathan, it's, it's good to see you. I, I just want to get the reporting on this. Are we fair to say that the, the White House has made a political calculation that they're willing to sacrifice some union support because of the progressive climate change agenda? I do think the president is in a very difficult position here because on one hand, he wants electric vehicles for the future. On the other hand, he wants to be seen as pro-union. And so that's where this becomes a very difficult situation for him. The UAW has withheld its endorsement of the president because they're upset about the idea that electric vehicles may require fewer workers than gas engine cars. All right. So how do we put this in perspective looking forward? Because it's one thing to have gone after the energy industry as he has. And and look, you know, we put through... uh, really from day one, canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, new sales releases on federal land, onshore leases fewest in a decade, Biden seeks fossil fuel-free buildings uh, in hit to gas, release new rules on electric vehicles, delays a new federal offshore drilling plan by eight months. It's fair to say he has, he has really crippled the domestic energy industry and for, for serious reasons. Now you look forward. Steel plants, 65,000 American jobs. Cement plants, 11,000 jobs. What, when the White House sort of puts this out to the New York Times, what's their calculation politically of who gets excited about this and who doesn't? 
Well, I think politically they see us as a country of a, with the future of green jobs. And I think the big question is, will those jobs be in the United States? I mean, electric vehicles are being made in China. China is selling a lot of electric vehicles in Europe already. Not doing so in the U.S., but that could happen eventually. And so I think there's a, there's a big question here. Will there be EV jobs in America and will they be unionized? Because right now you've got Tesla that's making EVs in California and elsewhere not unionized. Right. And so, you, got, you got BMW and Mercedes and sure. Toyota and everybody else throughout the southern United States, all non-union jobs. Sure. And all those companies have a cost advantage already on the UAW. UAW workers are making cars for a much higher price than those companies. And so I think the question here is how much of a raise are the UAW workers going to get? And is that going to create a, a situation where the automakers can't afford to make EVs at a price that we can pay for them. Well, and there's been a lot of government subsidies into the into the EVs, uh, especially American ones. Last question for you. Take us through the political calculation for the White House here mm-hmm. of that white blue-collar manufacturing workers are not necessarily the demographic that they feel like they need to go after anymore. I mean, I think that the 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 administration does want that endorsement from the UAW, but I'm not sure that they're willing to abandon the EV agenda to get that endorsement. I think they're walking a fine line, and honestly, I think they want this problem to go away. I don't think the president really wants this strike to linger. This is really an uncomfortable situation yeah. for him. It could hurt the economy, and it could certainly hurt his political support. Yeah, and, and then you sort of take it from the UAW, and then you t- take the steel workers and the, the cement workers and everything else. Nathan, fascinating reporting right. from Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. The United States military released a statement just a couple of minutes ago uh, saying it has found one of its misplaced F-35 stealth jets. This, this tweet this morning was pretty wild. If you have any information on the whereabouts of our F-35, please call our Base Defense Operations Center and helpfully included the phone number. The U.S. Marine Corps actually said that. It's pretty wild. Evidently, they have now located some of the debris from this F-35 jet, it was missing for 35 hours. It's a stealth jet worth millions upon millions of dollars, about $85, $90 million, depending on which model it is. And it was gone for about, well, about 28 hours. The question is, why did a pilot eject from it at such a high altitude and leave the plane on autopilot? Why would you eject from a plane that could still fly? And then why was it missing for so long? This story is not over. The fact that the Marines and the entire U.S. military misplaced an $85 million jet that crashed and they couldn't figure out where it was for 25 hours says an awful lot about things being not quite right in the U.S. military. There's a lot more to this story. The military wants you to believe they found it. No problem. We're going to move on. We're not going to move on. We'll have a lot more on the missing jet and why they needed the public's help tomorrow. Coming up, a Connecticut judge found a disciplinary court at Yale so flawed that it allowed an accused rapist to sue his accuser for defamation. What it says about the due process on Ivy League campuses and new video out of Las Vegas shows just how depraved our society has become. Why you haven't heard about joyriding kids chasing down and killing a retired police chief on his bike. Saif Khan was a senior at Yale in 2015 when he was accused of assaulting a fellow student on Halloween night. The woman claimed that Khan raped her after she admittedly had too much to drink. 
Khan denied the accusations, was arrested and faced a criminal trial. It took a jury three hours, just three hours, to acquit him on all charges. The story, of course, didn't end there. There was a hearing on Yale's campus in which Khan and his lawyer were unable to cross-examine his accuser. They were not even allowed to be in the same room when she testified. Yale suspended Khan and eventually expelled him. But now the Connecticut Supreme Court has found that Yale's kangaroo court was so unfair, they issued a ruling in Khan's favor, in the accused favor. They wrote that Khan's lawyer's inability to cross-examine the accused reduced them, and we're quoting now, to the role of a potted plant, saying fundamental fairness requires meaningful cross-examination in proceedings like the one at issue. They found Khan could actually sue his accuser for defamation, something he is doing now. And Saif Khan joins us now. Um, Saif, I appreciate you being here. You're suing uh, Yale University for $110 million on the basis that the university violated uh, your rights throughout the investigation process. Um, help us understand, is your issue with the university and with the accuser? And I- I'm, I'm wondering why you wouldn't want to just move on from all this. Well, good afternoon, first of all, Leland, and thank you yeah. for having me. And, uh, well, my father and my grandfather, as they grew up in Afghanistan, have taught me to fight for principles, fight for what is correct. And so Yale has taken away my 20s, and I'll give them my 30s, and I will stand for what is fair. And uh, so I'm suing the university, Jane Doe, and 13 Yale administrators who tend to be at the root cause of this Kafkaesque nightmare. And while I have deep uh, respect and admiration for the the true American justice system, uh, even though it has flaws, uh, the democratic constitutional republic has created a justice system that has cross-examination and a plethora of protections that pr- protect uh, both real victims and who accuse and people who, who are uh, innocent. And that filtering out of the process based on the truth and based on evidence is something that the justice system does. And the Connecticut Supreme Court, as you pointed out, showed yeah, that. I, I, I want to get to this. So, so basically what we have here is we have two, two tracks of justice, right? You were arrested. You were, you were put on trial. Uh, your lawyers had the right, as every defendant does, to cross-examine those who are making accusations against you. Uh, and you were acquitted by a jury of your peers. That's that's the way the criminal justice system works. Then you're subjected to this, what I guess we can only call a kangaroo court. And, and the, the idea that the Connecticut Supreme Court sided with you over Yale is, says, I think, everything here about how unfair it was. This was Yale having its own sort of quasi-judicial system in which you can't cross-examine, your lawyers weren't allowed to be uh, in the same room as as the hearing, on and on and on and on. And we've done a lot of work on this about Title IX and how unfair um, these hearings are. My question is this, is the issue that Yale did what the federal government wanted them to do, or Yale sort of went beyond the unfairness that even the federal government allows and had its own its own sort of hearing system? I believe it is a uh, confluence of many factors, uh, including the Dear Colleague letter that Obama had issued in 2011 and the investigation that the Department of Education was forcing universities to go through, uh, within which universities would lose their federal funding, of which Yale receives hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Granted, most of those are about research, 
Um, but the school is a corporation at the end of the day. And it is, there's been a capture of the administration with the uni- within the university by extreme Jacobin leftists that, that uh, uh, are raining their terror upon innocent kids. And in their calculation, they assume that uh, being from Afghanistan and being vulnerable, I, I mean, I had $94 uh, in my bank account when they... Uh, uh, kicked me out to summarily suspended me and they yeah. contacted uh, yeah so I, I, I think about I, I think about why you're suing and you know we we've often sort of questioned the the civil lawsuits and these sort of huge numbers but 110 million dollars an awful lot of money you were you were acquitted found not guilty by a jury of your peers now you want 110 million dollars how do you get and I say this respectfully, though, you, I, I get that your reputation was ruined. I get that your 20s were taken from you. And it's why we're having you on, because it, it seems profoundly wrong. But how do you justify $110 million? So that's largely a question for the jury to determine in the sense that what should we do when Yale is not merely adjudicating a process, but they're putting their grubby fingers on the scale they had uh, destroyed exculpatory evidence and they were trying to mess with the prosecutor and they had notes passed around that said he's from afghanistan he must have done it because violence is accepted there and along why do you think why do you think uh, they hate why would they hate you so much why would they have it out for you so it's it's again a confluence of factors i tend to go with my principles there was uh there was not much that yale when I was on campus that people could do regarding me, I was not the easy to fit box of white straight male. And, and, and I largely spoke about issues that I thought was unfair and including issues of, of, of politics, including issues related to, to gender or including issues mm. to all sorts of stuff. I, I'm, I don't shy away from it. And so I'm not simply suing the university. I am taking down the entire system. Uh, ultimately, I would prefer that colleges should never be in the business of adjudicating crime. Should we let them adjudicate murder, arson? What about tax fraud? Uh, it's a, it, look, it's a, it's a fascinating question. And the pendulum is swinging. Uh, it swung so hard one direction, right? Um, and obviously, you were a victim of that. And now it's starting to swing back. And uh, this lawsuit, the idea of being able to sue for defamation, um, Really applaud your lawyers, too, because it's a it's a really interesting way of going after the university. Um, we're going to keep following the case. Thank you. We appreciate it. Um, and, and look, it, it, it takes somebody being willing to stand up for what's right and saying, I'm, I'm going to put a stake down and I'm going to fight for my freedom, as you did. And then I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight back against uh, these universities in order to, to get change. So we applaud you for that. It's good seeing you. Uh, come back and talk to us. All right. Thank you for having me, Leland. Yeah, thank you. And look, it's clear that how sexual assault allegations have been handled on college campuses is a deeply flawed process. You could argue it was deeply flawed long before, and the pendulum then swung too hard one way and now swinging back. Schools, as you have heard, are now allowed to have this quasi-judicial system with their own set of rules, regulations, that do not follow anything having to do with the rules of state and federal judicial systems. Kangaroo Courts, News Nation legal analyst Sarah Azari is here um, with us. Sarah, I think it's important to make this note, right, is at one point there was so many young women who were terrified to come forward. These processes were put in place to try to encourage them to come forward. How do we find a happy medium here, or do we just say schools shouldn't have any part of this? 
I think your show is called On Balance, Leland. Um, there needs to be balance in this. And, you know, as a woman, I, of course, want women to come forward without any fear of retaliation, without a fear of being, uh, you know, not believed. But I do this in, in a court of law and I do Title IX. I defend Title IX cases as well. And I see the absolute damage that this Me Too movement that's now become a racket has done to the process. You know, when we're in a Title IX tribunal, like you said, it's uh, not a real court. It's made up of administrators. There's no judge or jury. Evidentiary rules are limited, uh, no cross-examination, preponderance of evidence is the standard, not beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, You know, it it really is set up to just kind of check the box that they allowed the accused to present his case and then then find him guilty. And so, uh, you know, and and when we look to it, you know, how victims play out in a court of law, there's an exorbitant number of bad act witnesses, prior, prior acts that are let in. They're not part of the case. They're not accusing the defendant in that specific case. Statute of limitations have run. What do you you make of this lawsuit? And this, when we read about it, it's sort of wild to sue your accuser of defamation, which normally is protected because if you, you know, you file a criminal complaint, you're, you're protected. Uh, If it goes through the, you're protected by what you say in court that, the, the Connecticut Supreme Court, of all people, would say that the Yale process was so unfair, you don't get that protections. It, it feels like a watershed moment to me. It is. And I think another watershed moment that we saw was, for example, you know, it was a defamation suit, um, was with the Johnny Depp case. You know, we're seeing yeah. that. Um, there are false accusations a lot. There are people that are telling the truth, but there are a lot of women who are not telling the truth. And so we have to have a system in place. And cross-examination, Leland, is the key tool that we have to test somebody's credibility. When it's he said, she said, and we don't have forensics, we rely on cross-examination. And yeah. so what better than to defer to a real court with real rules of evidence to let it play out? I, I think this defamation suit is significant. Um, uh, because essentially, you know, I get this question all the time. All right. Well, now I spend all this money and I defend myself and then I get acquitted. Um, what about the damage that was done to me? How do I go after this person for, for making false allegations? And so this is key because I think they, there must be, um, you know, evidence that not only she didn't you know, meet the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but that she had actually made false accusations. It's, yeah, it's I, hard. I, I, yeah, well, what Seif said I thought was interesting was he said, and we can't independently confirm this, but the idea that there were emails and other things from Yale uh, mm-hmm. sort of putting their hand on the scale and Not trying to, to, to change the case, that that changes everything. Um, Sarah, Absolutely. thank you very much. We appreciate we appreciate it. And I know we'll be checking in on your podcast called The Presumption with Jim Groton, an acclaimed criminal trial lawyer in which they share what they wish they knew about high-profile Court cases. A lot we wish we knew about. A lot we wish knew about the case uh, at Yale as well. Sarah, thank you. A couple of horrific crimes caught on tape over the weekend show just how little regard for human life there is in America. Why there is zero interest in addressing the sickness that continues to spread. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger, for the ones who get it done. Over the weekend, a group of teens live streamed one of the most depraved hate crimes we have seen in a while. And we have to warn you that what you're about to see is tough to watch. But if you watched any of the nightly network newscasts or read America's largest newspapers, we just checked again, you haven't heard about it. Here is the video that these teens posted to Facebook. A 17-year-old stole a car and then sped towards a bicyclist in Las Vegas. Ready? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hit his ass. You may not have been able to hear it, but retired California police chief Andres Probus died in the crash. He was 64 years old. You heard in the video the passenger encouraged the teen driver to run over the police chief. You'd think this violent attack would be front page news. Instead, CNN and MSNBC are focused on Laura Boebert's groping saga and the Iran prisoner swap. In fact, Neither outlet covered the deadly hit and run in Las Vegas. We didn't find anything on the New York Times or Washington Post homepages as well, if you're wondering. With us now, civil rights attorney Robert Matteo and Colby Hall, founding editor at Mediate, News Nation contributor. Gentlemen, it is good to see both uh, Colby to you on the media issue in a, in a minute. But Robert, how did we get to a place in America where this is remotely even in the thought process of people to do? Uh, well, I think we have to look at the fact that we live in a completely desensitized culture. Uh, we live in a culture where school children get murdered by the dozens on a regular basis, where we have um, terrorist attacks around the country, uh, where people expect the least from other people in our society. And I think that we have to start establishing overall moral standards again, where people have co- areas of conduct and just a general floor to what we believe in as a country. Uh, these children, these I- young people in this situation, uh, often they uh, grow up in uh, in places where there's drug use, where there's alcohol use, uh, where they are raised by uh, individuals who may not be, be able to pour into them properly. And we have ended up with this caustic and nearly cancerous culture where all but where only the worst things are not acceptable. And until we can pull back from that we're going to continue to see these things get worse all right so just so you all know i'm having an issue trying to hear either of you guys so i'll ask another i can see robert stop talking i'll ask colby now colby look i think it'd be fair to say that if the races in this were reversed if it was a uh, black victim and white teenage drivers This would be the only story in America right now. And yet I've been talking to people all day in Washington, those who are informed about the news, and they have never even heard of it. Why is that? Well, if the races were reversed, there would have been a different dynamic. It would have been a different story for uh, a ton of qualitative and quantitative reasons. Um, I agree with the previous guest just said is that we've become so numb to these acts of violence and the media, it largely ignores it um, uh, on one side. On the other side, you turn on conservative media, it's almost like watching snuff films. There's so many acts of random violence that you see because of course it's salacious and if it bleeds, it leads. And as a result, those who are really concerned of it are, are, are numb. And those, a lot of people who watch the nightly news broadcast news, as you said, aren't even aware that it's happening. There's, there's clearly a problem with our social fabric. And I'm not sure 
if the media has figured out how to deal with the, the, the preponderance of smartphones that can capture these things um, and, and capture oh, oh, all Col- this Colby, Colby, violence. Uh, Colby, there's a difference, though, between horrible violence and, and people actually chasing down and killing somebody for sport. And I guess, Robert, what I would ask you is, what, if we're going to be fair about the problems that we face in America... How is the biggest problem we face in America not a, a generation of people who put absolutely no value on human life? And I don't know how you, how do you, how do you teach 17 year olds? And of course, this is, this is news because it was caught on camera. If they hadn't Facebook lived it, it wouldn't be news. How do you, how do you teach this generation of 17, 18 year olds who have no value for human life that this, that this matters? Oh, I think you have to start at the top. We've talked before previously about the need for our federal communications uh, committee to actually do their job, to start uh, regulating obscenities, to start uh, regulating violence in our music and in our uh, entertainment. If you played a longer version of that clip, you'll hear the music they're playing in the car. The music is talking about drugs and murder. And the fact that we allow that to be on our airwaves, we allow that to be the predominant uh, musical outlet for young people, I think that contributes to it. If you look at video games, for example, I grew up playing as many video games as anybody else. There's an Xbox three feet in front of me right now. But at the same time, there has to be some regulation where you're not having Grand Theft Auto that glorifies people running down people and then picking up money out of their pockets. And then in real life, people are running down people and doing the exact same thing. We have to start looking at what we pump out as American culture and American society. We're not making Citizen Kane anymore. And it's very much reflective in what we're producing as, as Americans. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. Um, Mr. Smith no longer goes to Washington. Uh, and, and to put it lightly, Colby, uh, Robert, thank you both. We appreciate it. Thanks for uh, bearing with us through the audio issues. It's not great in Chicago either. Uh, obviously, we've covered the crime issues in Chicago. The Windy City, though, has a new solution. They propose building and stocking quasi-state-run grocery stores. Almost brings us back to Soviet Russia. The people who think this is a good idea when we come back. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Walmart and Whole Foods, among others, have closed their stores because of rampant theft. And a cruel irony playing out in Chicago Decriminalizing shoplifting led to organized theft rings, which forced businesses to close. Thus, the very people allegedly helped by the progressive policies get hurt the worst. The poor, black and brown communities in Chicago are now food deserts. There's nowhere to buy groceries. But fear not. The Daily Mail reports Chicago's Democratic mayor, Brandon Johnson, now wants to create city-run grocery stores to promote equitable access to food after Walmart and Whole Foods has closed... All right, Cuomo is here now. You know, Chris, it got me thinking that didn't we already try this once in the Soviet Union and in Venezuela, the state-run grocery stores? It it worked out so well. It reminds me of uh, the movie Repo Man, uh, where everything was (laughs) generic and you walked into the grocery store and it said like beer, ketchup, food. You know, there were no name brands. Look, this is a both situation, okay? Yes, you have food deserts. You have uh, people as a uh, coefficient of poverty don't have the same access to food. That may have been exacerbated by these big chains leaving. But, but, but the answer to the crime is 
to allow corporations to secure their stores and to prosecute the people committing the crimes. It's not about who's delivering the groceries. Yeah, but I, I, what, I, what I'm interested in this is, aren't people going to just steal from the state-run grocery store or the city-run grocery yeah. store the same way they stole? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't... Yeah, I, and if you have security in the state-run ones that you don't allow in the private ones, that's terrible. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't. Help me understand the continuation of doing things over and over and over again and expecting a different result that exists in some of these big cities. Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, you, you think uh. that you're going to alleviate the stress of hunger. The rule of law is most important to the most impoverished communities because they have the most crime. Uh, this is a misplaced compassion, what's going on here. And it's not helping anybody. It's hardening hearts, not opening them. Yeah. And look, it, and again, it, the, the poorest among us are always the ones who get hurt the, hurt the most by all this. Uh, congratulations on Gavin Newsom. I know that's coming up tomorrow. We're going to preview it tomorrow. I'm really excited for the interview. What do you got tonight? Tonight, uh, we're looking at a couple of different crimes, some really odd things that happened in a couple of the cases that we're covering. I have Matt Taibbi on, who's a, a journalist huh. uh, yeah. who I've long admired. I had to talk to him about this case that came down on censorship in the media and also about Russell Brand. He does advocacy work with uh, Russell Brand about censorship, so he knows him. And what is his take on these allegations? What's his feel for Russell? Interesting. Uh, what do you make of the support that Russell's getting? It's sort of an odd group. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, it depends on what you want to look at here with him. Him being called a crazy conservative because he has some unorthodox views. I, I think that's a misplaced label uh, that gets slapped on people when they say things that the left doesn't like. Um, when you're dealing with these accusations from the women, we got to hear them. Uh, you got to stop the crowdsource consequence before you understand if there's any corroboration. And uh, you got to go step by step with these things. Yeah, no, great points. Uh, we'll be watching. Thank you. Um, are you going to you're going to invite um, DeSantis for a debate with Newsom at some point? Would you be willing to moderate that as well? Uh, no, but I would love for you to moderate it. And I would very <laughs> happily give up my showtime for it. You're a much better moderator than I've ever been. Um, but well, it's always an open invitation to these men and women that we're here yeah. to provide a platform and to test their ideas. Uh, Look, I, I, I admire any politician these days who's willing to show up because they get a tough interview on your show. Uh, obviously, here we like to do that as well. There's so many of these guys who just won't ever show up. So um, congratulations. We'll be watching. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to All you right. soon, pal. Coming up, in Roman times, a senator, of course, would wear a toga with a purple stripe. Today, a senator can dress like he's mowing your lawn or his lawn. Sort of makes us wonder what happened to the toga days. Sorry. My bosses here at News Nation tell me to wear a suit and tie, so I wear a suit and tie. It, of course, shows respect for you, the viewer, for your time, for inviting us into your home. I would do it anyway. But if my bosses tell me to do it, I do it. Or I pack my bags. Same for the airlines. Pilots wear a uniform or they find a new job. Same for the U.S. military. You wear the uniform. Not so in the United States Senate. John Fetterman of Pennsylvania doesn't like wearing suits and ties, so today the Senate changed their rules. Hoodies for all. The 100 members of the world's most deliberative body can now wear whatever they want on the Senate floor. It doesn't matter anymore. 
Chuck Schumer's decision over the weekend is no different than passing third graders who can't read or letting high school kids graduate who can't do basic math. In America now, if we can't play by the rules, we change them. If we can't meet the standards, we change the standards. Of course, that means the new standard becomes the lowest standard, the lowest common denominator, all in the name of equity. So we don't leave anybody out. That's not an opinion. That's fact. That is what has happened. I'll see you tomorrow night in a suit and tie. We have some interesting news on the Mel Tucker case. Michigan State University says they are going to fire him. Why they changed their mind. That's tomorrow. Here's Chris. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Monday. We're back live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. We start with breaking news. There's a new witness 